welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm, I was going to do a whole I'm Jamie Sullivan thing, but I, no, I'm ditching it at the last minute, Joe. I'm Brenna. Hi. I was going to say, that is offensive, ma'am. <laughs> And our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the territory within the unceded traditional lands of Shwetmagulu. And today's text, A Walk to Remember, is set in North Carolina, the traditional home of the Nusiak and Lumbee peoples. And Joe, mm-hmm. for a text called A Walk to Remember... Yes. It is not memorable. Wow. We're coming out strong <laughs> out of the gates. I see. I see. Yeah, I don't know, man. This is my first ever Nicholas Sparks. Is it your first ever Nicholas Sparks? It is, yes. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know what I went in expecting. I definitely expected to have more of an emotional reaction to the book. Here's what mm-hmm. I expected. Okay. I expected to be very emotional and to be right. mad about it. Like I always am when I find something emotionally manipulative. Okay. Um, but instead, I just found it really flat. Interesting. Okay. I'm going to agree with you, but I don't hate this. Like I'm actually quite almost flat and ambivalent about it. Like I read it. I didn't mind it. I did really aggressively dislike the ending. And then it was just Mm. done. Mm. I think that is part of what didn't work for me in like an emotional arc kind of way. Oh, it's so abrupt. Yeah. And I didn't know if it was just me. I texted Joe while I was reading it because I had the ebook version from my library. Mm -hmm. And it has like an 80 page excerpt of another Nicholas Sparks novel at the end that I wasn't expecting. And so... When I got to the end of the book and there were still 80 pages left, I was like, oh, well, clearly something else is going to happen here. Mm-hmm. And then no, then nothing. There was just nothing. It's just done. Yeah. I can't tell if I had been like subconsciously saving my emotional response because I thought mm-hmm. there was something sadder coming at right. the end or what. But as a result, I just I had no... I had no affect when I read this book. I was just like, okay, these are two people. No, I know. I was about to make a joke about, you know, oh, the book just kind of flatlines because it just dies (laughs) at the end. And then I was like, oh, that's a bit gauche. But the reality is I felt the same, even to the point where I didn't really fully understand why we needed a bracketing device, because it doesn't feel like there's an adequate payoff because there isn't some kind of summary. It's really, you know, yeah, we had that summer and then she died and then the book just ends it isn't you know and then i dedicated my life to being a more like devout religious person or i founded an orphanage for adopted children or some something that says you know it was meaningful it's just like yeah and that's the story of my one true love done it's basically like her life was worth sacrificing because I'm a slightly better dude now. I was going to say, because it made me a better person. And really, <laughs> let's just get this off the table, right? Manic Pixie Dream Corpse. Basically, yeah. <laughs> I feel like we had similar discussions when we talked about A Fault in Our Stars. But in that case, it was slightly subverted because it was almost two Manic Pixie Dream people falling mm-hmm. for each other. Whereas mm-hmm. here, it's very much she dying Also, she make me a better person. Now she dead. (laughs) 
I think for me, the vibe was off from the beginning of the book because, um, and we're gonna gonna <laughs> gonna try not to go into Brenna the English professor mode here, but like, mm-hmm. it's another book in the vein of Stand by Me or Virgin yes. Suicides, where we have an adult narrator mm-hmm. retelling an experience from his teen years, right? Which, as I've argued before, is not true YA, although the film obviously is is true YA. Yes, and I think that that. I think that just creates a distance automatically because it's like, whatever happened here may well have been formative, but like, you're obviously fine, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And and just like in The Virgin Suicides, we end up really like living inside this male gaze as oh, a yeah. result, because it's like, I'm going to remember this one important woman or this gaggle of important women, mm-hmm. but they don't actually get to be whole people because you only ever see them through my clouded memories. And I yeah. just not into it as a trope. I just don't like it. Well it's a weird thing too because this book makes explicit acknowledgement that he was a jerk and that she changed him for the better. And also that like the fifties were a different time. So I'm allowed to be horribly misogynistic and judge all women and and basically just everybody based on superficial things like their looks and their popularity yeah oh my god and it's weird because the book acknowledges this like the character of landon as an adult acknowledges that he was not a great kid and yet we then still have to read all of it and it's still like a very skewed perspective and i yeah i also struggled with it a little bit it just takes him such a long time to realize what is just so obvious to the reader because of the framing device right from the beginning. Yeah. And then the book is so short and there's such an unsatisfyingly little amount of engagement between the two of them in the end where they're on equal footing. Mm-hmm. They basically get like a couple of chapters where they are sort of equals and then she's dying. And it's like... I don't know. I don't know. I expected to at least get a good cry out of it. And when I didn't, I think I was resentful. (laughs) It's almost worse, right? Like, where is my catharsis? I wanted tears. I demand tears. (laughs) It's exactly it. I might be ill. (laughs) I mean, it's December, folks. Like, sometimes what you want is a good end of year cry. And this is melodrama. Like, we know from page one she gonna croak so bring on the waterworks and when it doesn't deliver you're like well what good are you nicholas sparks (laughs) that's exactly it that's exactly it we should say for listeners who haven't dabbled in the novel which i'm guessing from my social media is a lot of folks i'm getting a lot of messages from folks who watched the movie and loved the movie but have never engaged with the book okay okay it's a christmas story and mm-hmm. I think that's a double reason why there should have been some emotional payoff. I cried more reading Dash and Lily last Christmas, Joe, than I cried reading A Walk to Remember. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And we weren't even that high on Dash and Lily. <laughs> there were a bunch of problems that really irked us last year. Exactly. But at least it manipulated me emotionally. There we go. <laughs> yes. If nothing else, please manipulate me emotionally. Uh, Bretta, what is this book about? Yeah, I was going to say. Okay, so um, (laughs) the protagonist is a boy named Landon Carter, who is like a jerk. He's just a really self-involved, jerky kid. 
Yeah, he blames it all on his dad because his dad is away in Washington and he's like, well, I guess I'm just going to coast through life except when my dad shows up and makes me do things like be a responsible citizen. Yeah, it's very interesting how that estrangement is made very clear in the film, whereas in the book, it's just kind of like, I get that you guys aren't close, but like he's not Mm -hmm. a monster. No, absolutely not. And so from the beginning of the book, Landon is sort of telling us about this woman he observes, this girl in his class, Jamie Sullivan, who is the mm-hmm. daughter of the church minister. Yeah, Her mother died, I think, in childbirth. And so she's yes. had this tragic backstory, and she carries a Bible everywhere she goes, and she's mm-hmm. very plain, which, according to Landon, is basically the greatest sin <laughs> a young woman can make, can do. It's social suicide, Brenna. She wears her hair in a bun. She carries a Bible. She has no friends. And she wears a brown sweater. Yes. (laughs) But always the same one. So what does he do? He gets her a brown sweater for Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) See, made me so annoyed. Anyway, all this to say, the school does a production every year of a play called The Christmas Angel, which is written by the church minister, but the school puts it on. Mm Mm-hmm. And this year, Jamie is going to be playing the angel, and she asks Landon to participate in the school production. Yeah, so it doesn't suck. And there's a whole bunch of back and forth, but eventually he does, and he gets cast as the lead. Mm -hmm. And so, oh yeah, and while they're rehearsing the play, he asks Jamie, he's trying to like find something interesting about Jamie, because there's nothing interesting about her, because she isn't pretty. And what he finds out is that the only thing she wants out of life is to get married in a church full of people. Right. Hold on to that. It's important. So, <laughs> well, we also right. have a dance, right? Because the dance yes. is the thing that kind of instigates things in the book where he can't find a date, but as student body president or class president, he has to go. And so he ends up resorting to asking her. And then I think because of that experience is when she says, oh, well, this dude seems tolerable. Maybe I can get him to be involved in this play because I really want it to be special because everything has to be perfect this year. Brenna, but we don't quite know why. <laughs> yeah, we get that first shadow. She's dying. <laughs> so um as they spend more time together, um Jamie starts asking favors of Landon and he he starts to agree to them because when she's dressed up as an angel in the play, she looks beautiful. She looks um, hot, so, yeah. So from that point on he agrees to do things for her. Yeah. For example, she has spent the whole year trying to collect money for the children's orphanage for Christmas presents. Mm-hmm. And uh, so she sends Landon out to collect the jars. When he collects them, there's only like 50 bucks in the jars in total. So he puts all of his pocket money, which is like $200 in. Mm-hmm. And this is how you can see how Jamie is making Landon a better person. Yeah. So they buy presents for the orphans. And then for some reason, Jamie gives Landon her dead mom's Bible. And then they dance. And then she says she has leukemia. And then so, <laughs> <laughs> yes. so he, he agrees to marry her, which all the adults are fine with for some reason. Oh, and then... I cannot. Mm-mm-mm-mm. <laughs> And then they get married, and then the book ends, the end. Yeah. And here's the thing. I'm on board with all of this. Like, it's very straightforward. It's pretty predictable. Nicholas Sparks is actually a very accessible writer. Like, this is a fast read. It's a very fast read. And I was on board with all of it. I'm like, yeah, okay, it's a little bit preachy. It's a little bit moralistic, whatever, whatever. I can see why people might like this. And then we get to the end. And when it's 
not something like I want to create a perfect date for you. Like when Landon takes her to go and see the sunrise at a specific point, mm-hmm. and he says, "This is what it's like looking and being with you." I thought, you know what? That's a great place to end a book. Like, let's give her a perfect <laughs> date before she croaks. No, no, she's going to be on her freaking deathbed, and we're going to walk her down the aisle, and that's where the title comes from. Oh, Brenna. Oh. I should have known, but I was still very annoyed and frustrated. And yeah, the fact that the adults are all just like, cool, cool, just get married. It doesn't matter. She'll be dead soon anyway. And then you can just go back to having a real life. (laughs) What? It, it's so and the scene in the wedding is the worst so she has to be wheeled in a wheelchair to the wedding because she is so ill and frail but of course mm-hmm. she forces herself to stand mm-hmm. and walk down the aisle because there's just like just just a little sprinkle of ableism in there mm-hmm. she wants him to have her whole when they get married it's super gross and then he watches her walk down the aisle for what feels like 25 years and he says that walk down the aisle is a A walk walk to to remember remember. (laughs) (laughs) yeah and it's disappointing because i think so much of the rest of the book doesn't suck but this ending sucks yeah the book is not my cup of tea and quite flat, but it's made worse by this bizarro ending that mm-hmm. I don't know who it's for. I guess it's for, I guess it's for a certain kind of demographic for whom a marriage is the be all and end all or something. All I could think the whole time was, are they just getting married so she can have sex one time? Like what is happening? Yeah. Cause the insinuation is there, but we dance around it. Yeah. She can barely make it down the aisle. I don't think they're having sex after this. No, no. In the movie, they totally do, though. Well, of course they do, because <laughs> it's a couple of pretty white kids. You got to get them with their clothes off. I wonder, though, I don't often like to do this, but who do you think this book is for? I didn't really look into Nicholas Sparks. I had a couple of people say, oh, he's not like a super great dude. Apparently he's got a bit of a background in terms of like some homophobia and some racism. Well, it feels very much like a book for a Christian audience, right? Because everything about Landon becoming good is primarily about him getting closer to the church Mm -hmm. and connecting to his faith, right? Which is why I was so surprised then that the end of the book doesn't have him become a minister or Mm. go away and try to, you know, help children in Africa who are starving or some other nonsense stereotype. Like, it seemed as though the book was reticent to take that final step. Yeah, I agree. In general, it feels like he just stopped writing. Mm Mm-hmm. If you've not read the book, listeners, I really cannot reinforce for you how abrupt and strange the ending feels. Yes. I mean, the lead up to their relationship happening is three quarters of the book. Mm -hmm. So to have no resolution on anything at all in the end feels like such an odd choice. Yeah, in some ways, I feel like it's almost meant to mirror the escalation of her deterioration. Like, a lot of the Mm. book is about the wooing and the romance and him overcoming his apprehension about the bun and the brown sweater and all this other stuff. And then when she says that she's ill, she's got about six weeks and it feels like she just immediately croaks. Like, the book is basically over. And it feels 
just awkwardly paced almost like oh okay well i knew i wanted to kill her when i first started the book let's spend a lot of time building up the relationship so that people care oh crap i gotta meet this deadline better finish this book and get it (laughs) off to the publisher well and there's no reason why the book couldn't continue on after she dies for a Mm -hmm. chapters or something right i also think one of the great frustrations for me is landon's general lack of character development because we're basically told that he has like become this good person but Mm -hmm. one of the things i dislike most about landon is how (laughs) (laughs) how... i'm sorry just like one of the things i hate the most about this character he's so superficial he's so superficial even if you just you go to the wikipedia page for this book they have like some descriptions of each of the characters taken from the text and it's Mm -hmm. like all he can think of when he looks at jamie's dad is that he's very old with translucent skin all he can think of when he looks at the treasurer of the student council is that he's unproportional and fat all Mm -hmm. he can think of when he looks at the drama teacher is that she's huge she's six foot two and has flaming hair and he judges everybody on these images that he holds of them mm-hmm. and we're supposed to believe that he's a better person but he only sees jamie as being a person of value once she looks beautiful on stage and when they get married all we hear about is how beautiful she is on their wedding day and it's mm-hmm. like this dude is not any different at all <laughs> no but brenna now he spends time around orphans and doing selfless deeds because he's with a pretty person (laughs) a little bit right that's what it feels like well and that's the error that the book makes by not having a few more chapters is that we need to see that this is a change that has affected him or that persists after she's gone because so much of it i dare say it feels performative because Mm -hmm. he's still trying to impress her or to be a better person for her what happens after she's gone Mm mm-hmm it's not there, so we don't know. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. No, it's not. It's There's nothing there. It's bizarre. I feel like the other issue with this book is that it is a two-character book. Yeah. Lennon has a couple of friends, one of whom Eric is the boy that he wishes he could be. He's popular. He's an athlete. And Landon is kind of meh. He doesn't really have any aspirations. He doesn't really want to do much of anything, but he hangs out with some cooler kids. Honestly, Eric has more of a character arc than Landon does. Uh, kind of, but Eric's like a POS, so. <laughs> but like once he starts dating Jamie, everybody yeah. else falls away to the point yeah. where sometimes he'll mention having a mother and you forget that, oh, yeah. right, he has a family. <laughs> yeah. It's very true. It's very true. So if you're not invested in the romance or if you don't really care about Lennon's journey because he's kind of a crappy character, there's nothing else in this book. Like, I forget sometimes that he even wants to go off to college and do anything because I think at Mm -hmm. one point he casually mentions, oh, I've got to get this application in. And then Jamie calls and he drops everything so that he can go and spend time with her. Like, he might as well drop out of school the minute he finds out that she's sick because he just dedicates everything to making sure that he's there before she dies. Well, and you say it's a two two character book, but I actually think that's overstating it because I don't think Jamie is a character. <laughs> is a one point five er. Gato, we're told she's religious, she's mm-hmm. sweet, adults like her, and she never changes from any of that. You know, like no. one thing I really appreciated about Mandy Moore's performance of the role is that she tries to give her some complexity. She tries mm-hmm. to make her a little bit more 
interesting, a character who doesn't love the situation she's in, who can make jokes about the situation she's in. But Jamie in the book is just like, she's so sweetly accepting of Mm -hmm. this horrible hand she's been dealt. And honestly, there's never even a crack in the veneer. And of course, this is because we're not really reading about Jamie. We're reading about Landon's 40-year-old memory of Mm -hmm. a dead girl. So it was never going to be real. But as a result, there's basically one character in this book, and I don't like him. So... Yeah. Well, it's funny, right? Because we're so we're gearing up for our next full length episode at the same time as we're recording this, which spoiler alert is on Nick and Nora's infinite playlist. Yeah. And it really reinforced to me the value of being able to get insight into both characters. Mm-hmm. You lose something if you have a single first person narrator because we're stuck in their heads. So you're already limiting yourself to what you can convincingly tell or know about some of the other characters. And it becomes especially problematic with someone like Landon who lacks any kind of reflexive insight into mm-hmm. who they are, what's driving them, what do they really want. So yeah, we get a literal angel who comes into oh. his life, changes it, dies. Yep. And that's all she's for. Like, I think the tragedy of the book is not that Jamie dies. The tragedy of the book is that Jamie's entire life is lived for the joy of her father or Mm -hmm. this dude. And that's it. She has absolutely nothing that is her own. And honestly, her character bums me out. (laughs) That's why I appreciated the scenes where we get to see them in the rehearsals for the play and also at the orphanage, because you actually get to see how she reacts to other people who are not her father and who are not Landon. But it's very brief. It is. It is very brief and it's very predictable, right? Mm -hmm. Guess what? She's great with orphans. (laughs) Guess what? She's good at school. Guess what? She's great at plays. Guess what? She's perfect. (laughs) Literally, I was trying to figure out, have we ever encountered a character who is more perfect and pious? I don't think so. We have not. No. Which is impressive. We're in year three of this podcast. How many of these (laughs) books and films and TV shows have we watched? Like, oh, okay, Jamie, guess you win this prize. By the way, now you got to die because you can only get worse (laughs) if you live. Oh, so unfeeling. Let's talk about the movie. Okay. Nice sweater. Thank you. She was misunderstood. (laughs) So what's your deal? You don't care what people think about you? No. She would change him forever. I need help with my work. You're asking me for help? Please. Okay. Landon Carter is coming here. Dad, I'm not a child. (laughs) Where have you been? Nowhere, man. Hey, Carter. So I'll see you after school? I'm in your dreams. Welcome to the planet. Listen, Jamie, I was hoping we could... We see good friends. Exactly. It's like you're reading my mind. Great. Um, maybe you could read mine. Maybe you're just too scared that someone might actually want to be with you. And why would that scare me? Because you want to be with me, too. I was getting along with everything fine, and then you happened. I might kiss you. I might be bad at it. It's not possible. I know you're my only 
So the movie is from 2002, and it is directed by one Adam Shankman. So uh, we got a song and dance man behind the camera, and also a queer man, so we'll acknowledge that. And the screenplay is by Karen Jansen. And one of the things that they do in the film is they move the setting from the 50s to the 90s, and there is no bracketing device. Sorry, just to interject, mm-hmm. I was extremely confused because <laughs> the movie opens and they're all mm-hmm. driving kind of classic muscle cars, I guess. A little bit, yeah. But the music is very 90s. Mm-hmm. But they're all kind of dressed really preppily. And I was like, is this bad at being the 50s or <laughs> is it contemporary? What is happening? It took me like solidly seven minutes to orient myself into the time period of the film. Don't recommend reading the book first here. When you texted me that, I definitely understood where you were coming from. But the fact that you could not tell that this was the 90s from the most aggressively 90s fashion I have ever ever seen in my life i was gobsmacked i was like are you not seeing these giant jeans these belly tops like (laughs) that's why i was confused (laughs) what is happening okay so in the movie obviously i mean manny moore is the selling feature here like nobody is coming to this movie for shane west unless you were like me and maybe a bit of a closeted queer and you thought oh that bland white dude is kind of blandly attractive (laughs) We also have uh, Peter Coyote as Reverend Sullivan, who I love. He doesn't get anything to do in this movie. It's a totally forgettable performance. Same goes for Daryl Hannah. You have Daryl Hannah in this movie and you don't give her anything to do except a bad dye job. It's a wig, actually, by the way. It's a wig. Okay. Thank you for clarifying, but also, yes, absolutely. Because it had to be. It was horrendous. We have Lauren German as Belinda, who is Landon's kind of on-again, off-again girlfriend. Clayne Crawford as Dean, who is one of his friends. Al Thompson as Eric. I I can't remember. Is Dean a character in the book, or are we sort of splitting Eric in two here? I think we're splitting Eric in two, but that also confused me in the film because you know how I can't tell white guys apart? Like, that's my thing. Mm -hmm. And there's one part where, like, one of them is just, like, screaming at him. And I was like, what is happening? What? And then (laughs) I just didn't... He looks exactly like Landon, but he's screaming at him that they're through. I was like, Mm -hmm. I don't know what's happening. Anyway, go ahead. No, that's basically it. You take Eric's character and you split him so that we have the slightly nicer African-American friend who is still who the football handshakes. player. Handshakes. Oh, I don't want to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then you have the, the dickhead white guy friend who is played by Clayne Crawford. And this is disappointing to me because I've seen Clayne Crawford in a bunch of different things. He always plays this derivation of a Southern redneck kind of a-hole And it's really annoying because I've seen him do this, but do it in a really interesting, nuanced, kind of complicated way. Folks, it's not YA at all, but I do really strongly recommend the TV show Rectify, where he's basically playing an adult version of this character, but there's so much pathos embodied in him. And if you see him in this role, you just think, oh, well, that guy's an (laughs) a-hole. Yeah, Mm mm-hmm. I mean, everybody's an a-hole in this movie, except for Manny Moore and Landon as he grows. They take it to the next level of a-holdom. Like, Mm -hmm. basically what happens in the opening scene is Landon and his friends nearly kill a kid. (laughs) Like, 
Yeah. So in another movie, this is the cold open to a horror film. Yes! Where a prank goes wrong and somebody dies or gets paralyzed from the waist down or from the neck down. And then a year later, somebody comes back to kill all of these kids. It felt very I know what you did last summer. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's just meant to establish how crappy landon and his friends are so that you can more easily believe his transition like well what he needed was somebody like a jamie in his life to get him off of this bad course that he's on with the rest of these bad apple kids and of course he never goes to even see this kid he almost killed in the hospital until jamie makes him of course yeah Mm -hmm. and the scene is pointless yes this poor boy isn't even a character he exists to show how much of an influence Jamie has had on Lyndon. Yes! You're just like, oh, okay. The film is interesting in this way, right? Like, it cuts a lot of the stuff out of the book. We don't get the dance. We go directly into the Christmas pageant uh, because Lyndon gets, what, he gets detention where he has to go mentor underprivileged kids and then Jamie encourages him how to do it and then they do the play. And then we just go from there. You mentor underprivileged kids, Joe, with basketball. Of course you do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) Even if you're trying to teach them math, you do it with basketball. Mm -hmm. Well, as you and I both know, working in education, it's like whatever tools you have in your arsenal, basketball. Especially basketball. (laughs) Yeah. Constantly taking faculty members out onto the court, getting them to work on their three-pointers, and also saying, hey, have you considered the latest online tools? (laughs) Okay. Yeah, sorry. I just had to, that whole scene was like, when Jamie's like, have you tried speaking to him in his own language? And of course, his own language is basketball. Well, he is a, a black boy. Yeah. Uh-huh. So. Uh-huh. Mm. Uh, this film is not good. I can nope. understand why people like it, but I was surprised again how emotionally uninvested I was in the relationship. Yes. I don't find that there's a lot of chemistry between Shane West and Mandy Moore, and that made it really hard to care about their journey. I think in general, once you have framed a character as being their basically sole personality trait is to be completely buttoned up, it's hard to establish chemistry after that. And that seems to be the problem here. Like, mm-hmm. I didn't really believe their love story in the book and i don't believe it anymore in the film and no part of the big problem with the film for me is that you update it to the 1990s so you Mm -hmm. remove a lot of the constraints and conceits of it being set in the 1950s yeah but then you still have jamie's entire life dream to be to get married and Mm -hmm. you still shoehorn that stupid wedding in at the end of the movie Yeah, and apparently, I mean, I don't know why Nicholas Sparks was doing press for this film, because he's, I mean, he obviously wrote the book, but he's not involved in the film. But I saw an interview with him, I think it's on the Wikipedia page for the film, where he talks about they were worried that they wouldn't be able to attract a teenage audience if this was set in the 50s. So that's why they moved it to the 90s. But you're right, this is a 50s book that has just been turned into a 90s film but the content and the characters haven't really changed that much. Like the pranks have escalated in terms of why Landon's a bad boy at the start of this story. But in terms of Jamie's characterization, she might as well be a 50s girl. 
Yeah, that's exactly it. And I, I find it really, um, I guess, disjointed. I know that the wedding scene is very important to Nicholas Sparks because the book was written for his sister mm-hmm. who did die of cancer. And uh, this is super ableist and gross, but something he has said a lot in press around the book is that the miracle of his sister's life was that she met a man who wanted to marry her, even though he oh, she no. he knew she was sick. Oh, gosh. And that's always the framing he uses. Even though she was sick, he mm-hmm. still wanted to marry. What a guy. What right? a great guy. Wow. Okay. And so there's something about that that is important to Sparks. But... I don't think it works in the book, frankly. I don't think 50s parents would have been cool with it, but whatever. Oh, I don't think so either. Yeah. It happens. But it's even more incoherent in the film, I think. Because at least in the book, there's like a half beat of convincing the parents. Mm -hmm. In the the film, the parents are all such non-entities that they they don't even rate in the conversation. No, no. It's strange. Like, I understand it because if you think of the film as a marketable piece of IP that we're trying to get teens in. And it does work because this film costs under $12 million and it ended up grossing four times that much. They released a family version of it later on in the year. It did very, very well on video. A lot of people have very, very fond uh, memories or they quite like the film. And I can see why especially if you haven't read the book you would come into this and be like oh it's a tearjerker oh Manny Moore she's really good in this but in terms of telling a story about people trapped in a small town it's making some very odd choices to not like open this world up and do something more Mm-hmm. There's no sense of place in this film, which I found really surprising because it's actually filmed on the same location as Dawson's Creek. So the school and the hospital and Landon's home are all sets from Dawson's Creek. And I've been thinking about this a lot since you texted me. I actually think that's part of the problem. Those okay. sets are so NEYA USA because right. don't forget Dawson's Creek is set in North Carolina or sorry, mm-hmm. it's shot in North Carolina, but it's not set in North Carolina, right? It's set in New England. Okay. And so, or Maine, you know, one of those places. And so <laughs> there's already a placelessness inherent in that, although- right. Arguably, like the construct of the town that Dawson's Creek is set in is really important to Dawson's Creek. But mm-hmm. I think that part of the problem is maybe it didn't feel this way in 2002, but revisiting those sets from 2021, mm-hmm. those sets are so iconically 90s, early 2000s YA that mm-hmm. they can't be any real place, you know? Right, like we automatically associate them with sets because of what we knew of them in the 90s. Yes, and apparently those sets were used for the Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood as well. So there's just like a lot of, I don't know, to me, this these are kind of three sort of iconic, for some, (laughs) texts, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, all trying to tread on the same actual territory. And I know film and television does this all the time, but it's, it's something that, particularly doesn't seem to work here. There's something, I texted back to you at the time, and I've been thinking about it more. There's something like ethereal Mm -hmm. about the book or a a striving towards being ethereal, right? Like Jamie is an angel in the play, right? right? And this ethereal nature, this sort of spirituality that imbues the text. Like I think 
there's something that is being striven for and reached for. Right. But I don't actually think it works in either text. And it ends up being fairly, I don't know. I keep saying flat. Disappointing. Yeah. Like, it's just meh, meh. Well, okay, so we've been using the word angel to describe her character in the film as well as the book. But of course, she's not an angel in the film. No, she just sings for no reason. Yeah, they, <laughs> so they jettison the whole principle. Because mm -hmm. at least again, in the book, that's another framing device, right? Like it literally positions Jamie as an angel by having her play one. Whereas here, we jettison that for some kind of mobster play in which yes jamie becomes a nightclub singer who performs a literal full song in this movie the whole context of the play is very confusing so mm -hmm. in the book the conceit is really clear jamie's father wrote this play it's important to her that on this last time he will ever see it because one can't imagine him wanting to mount this play again after mm. she's played the lead so much tragedy too and yeah, like this is, has to be perfect, right? And there's mm -hmm. all of this text around that. So we jettison all of that. Mm -hmm. This is a play that I think the kid who's basically it's the stand-in for the treasurer yeah. kid yeah. has written. But Jamie has written the lyrics and music for it, mm -hmm. which makes you think it's going to be a musical. It is But not. it's not. There's exactly one song in it. It's three mm -hmm. and a half minutes long. Yep. <laughs> Mandy Moore sings it. Thing. Oh my God. And she's great. She's lovely. She's lovely. She's Mandy Moore. But it's incoherent. But it's also a Mandy Moore song. <laughs> yes, it That is. doesn't have any bearing on who this character or what we're told no. the play is. So mm -mm. I think I messaged you when I got to that scene. I was like, oh, okay. Mandy Moore's agent called, said, <laughs> client will sign on to film but must perform song in full, must be showcase number. Because really, <laughs> the whole soundtrack to this film, I think there's three or four Manny Moore songs on this album. And I was like, did she sign on to this just so that she could sell a bunch of albums? Yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. I mean, she also wants a starring vehicle. Yeah, and she also said that the book was one of the most moving books she had ever read in her life. She was hyperventilating so much from crying when she read it. Okay. I mean, this is when she I was think, a teenage oh, girl. <laughs> you and I are just dead inside and we don't emotionally <laughs> connect to things that we're also too old for. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. I mean, I get the impression that a lot of people like this because they saw it in 2002 when they were teenagers or young mm -hmm. adults themselves. And I think if you also didn't know that she was going to die, if you thought that this was just a romance, like yes. we both walked into this being like, she did. <laughs> yes, it does make a difference. Yeah. Because it, it does seem to come out of nowhere. So I think if you're invested and then all of a sudden you get hit with the whammy in the same way that Landon does in the book and the film, like, oh, I thought we were going to have something and now you're dying. That's upsetting. I'm coming back to the soundtrack thing because I think it's actually another important clue for who this text is actually designed for. Mm -hmm. In addition to there being, yeah, six Mandy Moore songs on the soundtrack, there are also... <laughs> One, two, three, four songs by a band called Switchfoot, plus a Mandy Moore cover of a Switchfoot song. Are they a Christian rock band, perchance? Yes, and this soundtrack was their crossover opportunity. Oh, okay. And so I think that that's really a significant thing as well. Like, this was a moment in pop music when there were a lot of sort of Christian bands becoming mm -hmm. popular. I oh, think sure. that... It was sort of the beginning of 
the kinds of culture war issues that we see writ large now and the way um, sort of mainstream Christian staples have taken over pop culture in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And so I think, yeah, between between the soundtrack and the content and the book, like, we're not this in Kansas anymore, Joe. This is a faith-based film. Yeah. 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 Strongly so. Yeah. Which, again, is maybe another reason why you and I don't quite mm. connect with it, because we are agnostic bordering on atheists. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was almost going to open today with two dead inside atheists read A Walk to Remember. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I'll never forget the walk, Brenna. She oh, looked Brenna. so gorgeous. Oh, okay. 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 The worst line in the movie, the worst line in the movie is when at the very end they have Shane West mm-hmm. shoehorn in. I still remember watching Ooh. her walk down the aisle yeah okay we get it it's walk to remember we get it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and maybe we can wrap it up here before we play some YA bingo but i do have to say i don't mind adam shankman he started his work as a choreographer like i really like his film version of hairspray oh i love that movie yeah it's it's great and it has a certain kind of energy that I wish maybe we saw a bit more here, but this is a bit more maudlin in terms of the tone. But I have to say, whoever was doing coke while editing the vow sequence (laughs) of this movie, it's meant to be an emotional high point of the film. It's basically the climax. And we are cutting back and forth between the two of them saying their vows to each other. And I practically had to get a motion sickness bag because I was going to bark. It's really bad. A filmmaker should know better. I have two pieces of trivia to share before we move on to uh, YA Bingo. All right. What have you got? So the first is more evidence that you and I are dead inside because the 2002 Teen Choice Award for Choice Movie Chemistry went to Shane West and Mandy Moore for this movie. Okay. So Cardboard Cutout and Mandy Moore won a big award. Yep. (laughs) The second piece of trivia is, yeah, so this movie came out in January, right? And then Mm -hmm. that following Christmas, they released what is called a family edited version of the film. What could Joe, what the heck is in the edited? family <laughs> What the heck? Well, they probably cut out the entire opening scene and yeah. maybe any references to drugs. Like, there's no profanity in here, so clearly no. not that. Maybe it's just her walking down the aisle. It's a two-minute movie. <laughs> If anybody has seen the family edit of A Walk to Remember, could you please write in? I need to know. I need to know much more. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I do not. So don't include me on that. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> All, All right. right. Let's do some YA bingo. Okay. Bingo. Not a good bingo. Uh, so obviously we've got a perfect date. Oh, yeah. So many perfect dates. And we've got an inclusion flip on Eric's character. Agreed. Yep. Borrowed time, obviously. <laughs> Why? Whatever do you mean? <laughs> I think there's quite a lot of ableism in both the film and the book. Yeah, sadly, I agree. Uh, Manic Pixie Dream Person. Mm-hmm. And finally, Joe, Holiday Prom or Wedding, where it's <gasps> actually a holiday set piece. And a wedding. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I forgot about the wedding. <laughs> uh yeah i'm gonna say that it's a hollow romance oh yeah i mean i know we're gonna get flack from people who really like the movie and enjoy the chemistry if that offends you then we can just say it applies to the book but it applies to both it totally applies to both also dead body and dead family 
Yeah, indeed, mm-hmm. indeed. I'm also going to give it to musicality because we do have a full song in this movie. <laughs> I kept thinking it was going to end. I know, because, again, cinematically, it doesn't make sense to let somebody do an entire number. <laughs> We're not watching a musical on stage. You can edit around that. Like, we just need a taster. Yep. Nope, we get the whole thing. <sighs> uh, and then finally, I'm going to say stunt casting because it's Daryl Hannah. Yeah. Yeah. You can't really say Mandy Moore because she wasn't super uh, famous at this point. She was famous okay. as a singer, but she wasn't like this would have been like casting uh, Britney Spears in Crossroads where it's a big deal. But there's a curiosity, looky-loo kind of, ooh, can she also pull off acting? Right. Okay, I get it. I think we have an inauthentic voice issue because well maybe not it is an old man looking back i just didn't really believe landon's perspective a lot of the time i just thought it was kind of right you can argue (laughs) with me on that one though um i don't care and jamie is clearly the chosen one yeah i debated with that but she's also the manic pixie dream girl and i think that that's a more appropriate title like it feels like a double dip to choose both I disagree. I feel like she's both. <laughs> All right, fine. I will they give you that one. They literally make her the angel in the play. Okay, fine. <laughs> fine. Uh, All right. Sadly, that does not quite line up to a line. This was fine. Yeah, like, it, it sounds like we absolutely hated this because we came down pretty hard on it. And it's just more that it's half not for us and the ending is really garbage. But yes. the rest of it is perfectly serviceable. I can totally understand why people like this text. Yeah, I really love their scenes in the film in particular, like the telescope scene, adorable. I mean, oh, bad yeah. CGI on that comet, by the way, oh, but adorable. Awful, awful. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's a lot going for it. It just, I think the ending really sinks both book and film, to be perfectly honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree completely. So, Joe, a little bit of a time-sensitive uh, message here as we round out the show. Mm-hmm. Our last book club of 2021 is coming up. We're going to do some retooling of book club. Book club is sticking around, but it's going to change shape a little bit. We'll tell you more about that in the new year. Mm-hmm. But you only have two days. You have until December 15th to get your feedback in about Raven Song by Lee Maracle. So if you've been reading along, this is your final reminder to get those mm-hmm. thoughts in ASAP. Indeed, yeah. So that's where we're headed next. And then I've already teased where we're going to close out the year. So we are going to be looking at Nick and Nora's infinite playlist. And apparently this is just what we do now, Brenna. <laughs> we read a David Levithan and Rachel Cohn book and movie. Yeah, apparently. This one's set at Easter, but we're going to do it at Christmas because <laughs> that's how we roll. Yeah, this is this is how we do it. Honestly, we wanted to end the year with something that's a little bit fun and amusing and a little bit escapist. I also think we're both desperately in need of a high energy text because yeah. we begin every recording session before we go on air by complaining to each other about how miserable we are and how <laughs> over COVID we are. So a little bit of energy from the text will be more than welcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Brenna promised me a little bit of manic energy, so I'm uh, I'm ready to hit the music scene for a wild all-nighter to cap off 2021. <laughs> so folks, if you want to follow up with us about Book Club, remember, only two days left, or anything else you hear on the show, you can find us on Twitter at HKHSPod or on the hashtag HKHSPod. Joe, where do we find you? I am at B, stole my remote, and that's the letter B. 
and I'm at Brenna C. Gray, and that's gray with an A. And you can get us on our email for something longer, hkhspod at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. So uh, you're reading Ravensong, and you're reading Nick and Nora, and you're watching Nick and Nora, and we will talk to you soon. I'll see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. I messaged you when I was watching the film about how this whole film has a curious sense of place. This whole film has a curious sense of placenessness. Placelessness. This whole film has a curious sense of placenessness. Nope, still can't do it.